Hi, and welcome to the Business Divorce Roundtable. I'm Peter Mahler. This is part two of my interview of Professor Peter Mulk about his article entitled Protecting LLC Owners While Preserving LLC Flexibility. If you haven't already listened to part one of the interview, I highly recommend that you do so because we're going to dive right into it in this part two. Professor Mulk got his BA and law degree from Yale Law School. He went on to clerk for Circuit Judge Ralph Winter on the Second Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals. He was an assistant professor of law at Willamette University before landing at his current position with the University of Florida Levin College of Law, where he teaches contracts, securities regulation, corporations, and insurance. He's published numerous law review articles on business law topics, including the problems associated with LLC internal governance. In this episode, we're going to dive right into a discussion of Professor Molk's article, in which he puts forward a very interesting LLC member accredited investor proposal, which is based on the securities laws accredited investor concept used for unregistered securities. So without further ado, let's pick up with part two of my interview with Professor Peter Molk. I mean, there is a little bit more structure that, to your proposal that you talk about in, in your article. You talk about qualified LLCs. You talk about non-qualified LLCs. I, as I understand it, the former would be able to welcome into the LLC fold what you call the accredited LLC investors, but not the unaccredited LLC investors. Am I right so far? Yeah. So with any sort of law review article, you need to come up with your fancy terminology and, and- and you are recounting it perfectly. One of the keys to the structure you talk about is ascertaining which investors are going to be designated as sophisticated or not. And the measure of sophistication is based on wealth, or at least that's one of the ideas, if not the main idea that you use, which I gather is drawn from the model that we see with the offer and sale of registered and unregistered securities. That's right. Well, you're right. It's, it's, it's what you're trying to do is figure out a way to separate the pool of potential LLC investors into those who essentially know or should know what they're getting into and those who don't. And you want to be able to separate them in a way that's fairly accurate, but also importantly, has to be easy to administer. So that's why wealth is is good. It's, it's, it's very easy to administer, but it's certainly not the most accurate way of separating those two groups. And that's one of the main criticisms against something like the accredited investor standard from securities law. And that's certainly one of the criticisms you could make against the idea in this paper as well. Is there an alternative to using wealth as the proxy for sophistication? The biggest benefit of of that approach is that it's it's really easy to administer. So the administrative burden here is low, and that means that this is a fairly modest requirement for companies to comply with, just check off whether their investors have certified that their wealth is or isn't above a certain level. You could imagine something that has a bit higher of an administrative burden, but maybe is a better predictor of what we're looking for, which is investors who can and cannot or should or shouldn't be capable of protecting themselves. Uh, One thing may be to have them take some sort of test that asks them, I don't know, you could have a whole list, like your your test to get a driver's license, but this is your test to invest in risky LLC agreements. So it could ask something, several questions about the governance rights that parties do and don't have by default and the ramifications of, of waiving those rights. But you can see that that starts to trade off easily 
ease of administration. It's, it's difficult to administer something like that. But on the other hand, you get probably a better predictor of what we're looking for, which is parties' ability to protect themselves. So there are a variety of ways you could do it. You could look to like whether the company decides to form in-state or out-of-state with the assumption that if you're a domestic LLC, it's probably more like the mom and pop family type of business. Uh, whereas if you decide to look out-of-state, it's a signal that you're probably more sophisticated. So there are other ways that you can try and get at this. And I certainly, if, if I were actually going to implement this thing, I'd want to, to do some actual tests on which of these and how well they differentiate these groups. Uh, but again, the basic idea is that you want to divide investors into the two pools. And if there's an LLC that has the sophisticated pool of investors only, then they get to elect into the riskier status that allows them, if they want to, I mean, they don't have to, but allows them to waive the traditional corporate law type of protections. So as a practical matter, what would be involved is the sophisticated investor who is filling out some forms that certify his or her level of wealth or I'm not sure if there are any other criteria that, that you would use in that system. And then would there be some disclosure associated with that by the organizers of the LLC or no? So you can see either either type of a system there has, has merits. I don't think there needs to be disclosure other than giving people a copy of the operating agreement. I think that that's, that that's important. But I don't think you need to to put in there like a cover page summarizing these are the protections you do have, these are the protections you do not have. Because usually everything in an operating agreement is important. And as you know, these things can run over 100 pages and trying to distill that down into a one page thing is going to lose a lot of the nuance of, of what's contained inside there. So I think that, that that would it would be great if you could somehow summarize this in a in a nice easy to digest format but I think that's really hard to do. In my world I use that expression again I'm dealing so so often with family owned LLCs they may have been converted from if they're into the second or third generation they may have you know originated as partnerships or right. um, and I'm dealing also with companies that are you know owner operated where you know, they're not simply passive investors. They are the people who you know run the company, whether they're front of office, back of office, sales, financial, whatever, mechanics, you know, it, it takes all types to run mm -hmm. a business. So I'm, I'm just trying to digest the idea that for a family-owned business, there are going to be non-waivable mandatory rules. To what extent is that going to interfere with the longevity, the cohesiveness, say, of a family business that is intended to to last, you know, multiple generations. Uh, so I, I think that's a that's a great case to think about. How can you? Uh, so what what you really don't want to do with with any sort of uh, reform is to get in the way of something that's already functioning uh, very well. So I'm I'm certainly a sensitive to that sort of circumstance. There are, I think, there's a, there's at least a, a couple of responses. To, to, to that. And one would be the problem here, I think, really depends on how many mandatory protections you want these companies to have. And if you're talking about just the basics, so stuff that's mandatory from partnership law or mandatory from corporate law, those are important protections. But for most companies, it
it doesn't get in the way if they're subject to a mandatory right to seek judicial dissolution or a mandatory duty of loyalty. And that's because these these companies are the, the owner operators get along. They're not trying to take opportunities um, that belong to the company or that belong to, to other owners. So putting those protections in place shouldn't really get in their way, especially if they started out as a partnership or a corporation where they were already subject to these protections before they converted into, into an LLC. So that would be one response. Uh, another one would be that for the type of unsophisticated party, uh, and again, like I wish I had a better term than unsophisticated and sophisticated because it's, it's painting with a fairly broad brush here, but it's kind of shorthand for people who know what they're getting involved with or should know. Uh, versus those who don't. Um, but if we're dealing with a group of relatively unsophisticated owners, they may not really, they're, they're not going to know what the law is anyways. They're not going to know what the operating agreement says or the importance of that. So giving them some mandatory protections that really matter only when things go south, that's also not really going to get in the way of these businesses when families are getting along and that continues for, for generations. So I, I think that you can uh, accomplish this goal in a way that doesn't get in the way uh, too much or at all for many companies that are already accomplishing things without having to resort to uh, what the law says. On the other hand, you're giving important legal rights for when these families break apart. Uh, you've seen, I know you've, you've read, uh, you've, you've, you've blogged about cases where you have spouses who get divorced and it's just terrible what that does to uh, the companies. And can you imagine what that would look like if there were no right to go to court and seek judicial dissolution? Uh, in that circumstance, we have 50-50 owners who now don't talk to each other. I think that would be horrendous. So providing some sort of escape valve in that circumstance can be important. Yeah, no, I agree with you, particularly in that 50-50 situation. When I think of the the more typical majority-minority setup where frequently, you know, you have a money partner and a sweat equity partner, I'm trying to figure out, you know, if that's if that's not a, what to use your term, terminology, a qualified LLC, to what extent would the, the money partner who usually, well, <laughs> has the upper hand. And, yeah. and, and and I think most people would agree, would say rightly so. Would the system you envision allow some flexibility to modify mandatory rules with respect to you know major decisions, perhaps, or with respect to corporate opportunity or anything else you can think of? Oh, sure. Yeah, I think that that would be important. Another example of the circumstance you're you're thinking of is uh, you have maybe like three big money partners start this company, but they want to, like you were saying, incentivize some of the employees who work there. Now, those employees don't have a ton of money, but you want to incentivize them by giving them some sort of participatory, participatory interest in how the company does. But you certainly don't want that to then blow up whether the company does or doesn't get to uh, waive uh, mandatory protections that would be involved when you have less sophisticated owners. So I think that that's an issue that that we can grapple with. I don't think that it's insurmountable, but I, I think that it would be important to make sure that for, for, for people like like employees of the company, they probably have a pretty good idea of, of what's going on and when business is and isn't going south. In the securities uh, realm, there's actually uh, accredited investor. It's based primarily on wealth, but there's is also you can qualify as an accredited investor if you're a certain level of employee at the company or otherwise uh, should be able to figure out what's going on. And I think that you could import that into the LLC space as well. It just gets a little messier to talk about how to do that. But 
I think it's something we certainly should do because as, as, as you point out, you don't want, uh, like when, when the mechanic becomes an owner of the very successful car repair shop, you don't want that to then somehow say all these protections that were merely default are now mandatory because the downside of that is that, well, now maybe that mechanic is never going to be granted an ownership interest and that's going to have all sorts of uh, negative implications as well. So you don't, again, you don't want to get in the way of people doing stuff that works pretty well. I think that's, that's an important thing to keep in mind when you're designing any sort of system, this one or, uh, or another one is to the extent that people protect themselves without the law. That's something that uh, we want to encourage. We think of Delaware as sort of epitomizing the freedom of contract approach, and, and maybe it is at, at sort of that end of the spectrum or, the, or sort of the spectrum that you're portraying. I'm not sure what state would be at the other end of the spectrum. There's probably a bunch of states. Maybe even yeah. New, maybe even New York is at that other end of the spectrum in terms no, of... No, they're, they're, I'd, I'd put them as pretty... They're, they're not quite as, as uh, close as Delaware is if you don't contract with they're pretty close. Yeah. So, so what can you think of some states that you would say are are as far away from Delaware as as any state? I so I don't have a state off the top of my mind, but I know that something like uh, the Model Acts have uh, more in the way of manda- much more in the way of mandatory protections than a state like Delaware or even uh, even New York. But you could imagine essentially a state that just takes corporate law and says we're going to call this LLC law. So you maybe you don't need a board of directors anymore, but otherwise all the mandatory things from corporate law we're going to import into LLC space. And that thing gets back to something you said at the at the very start of our uh, discussion. You pointed out how uh, in that case, then maybe LLC law isn't all that different from something like corporate law. And in some states that may be appropriate, maybe they don't care uh, or maybe they don't have investors who care about the contractual flexibility that LLC law historically uh, offers. But for a lot of investors, they really, the reason they choose an LLC is not the tax reasons. It's for the ability to get rid of entirely fiduciary duties because they don't want the risk that they're going to have to go to court and litigate some of these gray areas that could really tie them up from, get distract them from what they want to do, which is uh, make money and run their business. You know, the, the uh, LLC movement really gained momentum in, say, what, the late 80s, early 90s. I think by, right. by 94, 95, I think just about every state had adopted a LLC act. So it's been, you know, roughly 30 years, maybe a little bit less. And and you point out in your article, as, as many others have elsewhere, that the LLC has become the dominant form by far. And that's, I suppose, one of the reasons that you're so focused on it in your writings, it sort of ties in with something I've always preached, which is that all of the things being equal, if I'm going to be a minority equity owner of a closely held business entity, I'd much rather be a minority shareholder than a minority member of an LLC. And that reflects a lot of what you've been talking about, about the ability the LLC statutes give to vary default rules that would otherwise give protection to minority LLC members. All that being said, you still do see a fair amount of legislative activity, not in New York, God forbid, but um, <laughs> you know, I, I do come across articles now and again of various states that are rejiggering their acts and, and it's encouraging and it's sort of good in the sense, I think, of this of we have these 50 states plus some territories that are experimenting with their LLC laws. You know, I think that's good. I would also note that the Uniform LLC Act seems to be rolling along. It's it's still picking up a state every 
what, couple of years, two or three years? I'm yeah. Not, I'm not sure if they're halfway yet. I think they're close to halfway. I could be off. I think last time I looked, it was, uh, they just reached 20. So they're probably at, I don't know, 22 or so, I guess. Yeah. And, and, and I'm just curious what your thoughts are in terms of, you know, everything that you're talking about, the, the irreconcilability in some respects of the freedom of contract doctrine versus, you know, mandatory protections. I mean, where does the Uniform Act fit on that spectrum? I think that the the Uniform Act is, it's more, certainly more on the mandatory side than something like the Delaware approach. For that reason, it could be appropriate for some states that don't uh, really have a pool of sophisticated investors who care about contractual flexibility. So in that way, it can be good. I think that there are, there are issues with it that some others have pointed out, such as stuff that looks like a default can in some way be mandatory. So I think they allow waivers of certain fiduciary duties as long as it's not manifestly unreasonable to do so. So that looks like fiduciary duties are, are kind of a default, but if, if you go too far, then, then the, then the waiver is not effective. So some certain core of fiduciary duty is mandatory. But of course, nothing is defined there about what is and isn't manifestly unreasonable. And then that opens the door to the problems with these mandatory protections, which is their lack of, of predictability. So, so there, there are pros and cons of, of what the Uniform Act is trying to do. But, but I agree with you. I think it's terrific to see, uh, that states are, are still thinking about how we want to go with, with this issue of, of what protections do we give people and, and what, what protections do we decide not to. One of the great things about my job is, is I can kind of take a step back and I don't have to deal with the law the way it is, which which is, is great for me. I don't have to, to try and take the existing law and say, how, how do we fix this with some incremental changes without blowing it all up? I can take a step back and, and kind of say, if we're designing this from the starting point, uh, is this what we'd want to do? And I think that's important to do for LLC space because it started out in, I think, the late 70s in in Wyoming, where it was really designed with these really sophisticated people in mind. And if that's the audience that you're tailoring to, of course, you're not going to write the law in a way that now also takes into account the everyday investors that use LLCs today. When I can take a step back and think, is this what we want to do? I think that that can be an important contribution as well, because otherwise you you have a starting point and then the path dependence of you're always kind of tinkering with the existing law rather than rewriting it wholesale. That path dependence tinkering type of story can lead you into a situation that's maybe a place that we don't want to be anymore and a place that we should, or at least something we should think about. Is this kind of where we want to be taking into account the benefits of this approach, but also the costs? I wonder if you think that as as the years pass, does it get harder, do you think, to get certainly legislatures to listen to ideas that are, they may strike them as somewhat, you know, revolutionary. Let's redesign, you know, let's redesign the statute. I imagine it's harder as, as the years pass. What do you think? Oh, I think that's definitely true. It's certainly going to depend on on the state that you're in as well. So if you're if you're in a state where you don't have a lot of LLC business and there's not really many interest groups pushing you one way or another, that's maybe a circumstance where you can play around a little bit more, assuming that uh, you have a legislator who cares enough about this issue to do something. If you're in a state like Delaware, I, 
I, I don't think that there'll be wholesale rewriting of the LLC law. Uh, and I don't think there should be either because you have a lot of people who organize as Delaware LLCs or New York LLCs with certain assumptions in mind about how the law is going to be. And, and you don't want to just disrupt those assumptions willy nilly. So there is still a room for some significant change. And I certainly think a place like Delaware can have meaningful change when it's needed. But I would be very surprised if they just rewrote their entire base of LLC law, both because I don't think it's necessary, but also because uh, they have a real interest in kind of keeping what they have and protecting the assumptions that all those investors have made who decided to organize in that state. I mean, some of the problems that you identify, particularly with regard to the unsophisticated uh, owner or investor of an LLC, you find the same problems, of course, with closely held corporations, which have been around a lot longer than LLCs. Um, yeah. And, and, I, and I recall that in certain states, they made some attempt to define a close corporation and adopt a separate sort of, a separate set of rules, I should say, for you know, those defined close corporations. But I never got the sense that those statutes really took off, that any significant number of business owners elected or opted into close corporation coverage. Do you think if we set up parallel sets of rules for the, the again, to use your term, qualified and unqualified LLCs, you think you think we see something different happening? Uh, I would I would certainly hope so, but it's it's I think that the the close corporation picture is a good one to keep in mind. Uh, you're right that that the 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 close corporation framework didn't really catch on. I'm sure there are all sorts of stories for why that didn't happen. Uh, one of them though is that for in many states the close corporation isn't all that different from being a traditional corporation. And in some ways, can be more burdensome with what you have to certify to to your state to be able to have that status. And so if there's not much benefit, but there are costs, then rationally, you wouldn't expect many companies to make that uh, to make that election. But it would also take, I think, a, a long time for this sort of change to catch on. So just like for many years, LLCs weren't uh, super popular. And then after they check the box regulations, LLCs gained in popularity. But still, there's this period of time where you have some new form. It's it's kind of untested and you don't want to be the first person to to try it out and, and to be the guinea pig on which the law is made. You rather other people do that ahead of you. So I would think if even if you adopted a system uh, like what I'm describing here, where you have um, one type of LLC for sophisticated parties and another one for, for others, you'd have to give it some time before you decide that it is or isn't working. Because uh, again, with any of these new forms, you, you don't want to be the first one uh, to be uh, to be trying them out. Peter, it's it's been a great and fascinating discussion with you. I can't tell you how much I appreciate your scholarship in this area. You're one of what I see is, you know, just a handful of academics who are continuing to probe and to think about ways in which we can improve the rules under which LLCs operate to identify the problems that our current statutes don't seem to be able to cope with or strike the right balance. I look forward to your next article. Do you have a next article you, you've already started on? Uh, there's always a few in the works and, and maybe half of them end up coming out. But and there's a lot of interesting issues to look at in the LLC space, both because uh, they're they're so important. And I think that they haven't been written about as much in the legal literature. So stay tuned. Hopefully some more things that try to balance what's what's actually important for the practice statutory development of LLCs with, with some of the more academic perspectives. 
perspective too. And your blog is, is uh, I, w- I want to mention, I'm sure you've been told this many times, but uh, for me in particular, your, your blog is just terrific, Peter. I mean, the, highlighting these cases for me that I then get to, to write about for many more pages <laughs> than you uh, than you have space for. Um, it's, a, it's an invaluable resource for me. So thanks not only for inviting me to participate, but thanks for uh, continuing to write like you do. I don't know how you have the time to do all of this, but uh, you must drink a lot of coffee and not get a lot of sleep. I don't know. I say the same thing about you when I read your your articles because there's a whole there's a whole lot more work and scholarship involved in writing what you write than what I write. But I I appreciate your comments, Peter. It's been great talking with you. I look forward very much to our next encounter on this podcast because I know you're going to continue exploring LLCs, close corporations, and everything else that's near and dear certainly to my heart. So thank you, Peter, very much for uh, another interesting conversation. Thanks, Peter. I'll see you then. Okay, that was Professor Peter Molk. I hope you liked the interview. If you did, please recommend it to your colleagues in the business divorce community. And I'd greatly appreciate your taking a moment to give it a thumbs up on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, don't forget to check out the New York Business Divorce blog, where we post articles every week on new court decisions and other legal developments concerning business divorce. Until next time, this is Peter Mahler. Thanks for listening.